Last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 5 and we looked at a new motivation. We looked at a new perspective and a new mission that we should have as believers. When the Spirit of God comes into us, Paul says that we're a new creation. So that means that, that the selfish, uh, the self-led self-interest is secondary to God interest for the rest of our life. Now, we live in a human body that struggles with the frailties of the world, and the enemy knows that, and he comes in and tries to distract us. And there's no greater example, I think, other than Christ Himself, than Paul in the New Testament, of somebody who embodied what that means to be a new creation. God took him from being a man who was killing and torturing and persecuting Christians to being one of the greatest followers of Jesus and most influential throughout history. I mean, God used him to write most of the New Testament. But most of the New Testament that he wrote came as a result of him walking through pain, walking through persecution. Now, none of us want to sign up and say, okay, I want to go through pain, I want to go through persecution. But God will use that in our lives to use us as an example to other people. And Paul embodied that. He went through tons of suffering. And there, there's not a person in this room who's gone through anything greater than Paul went through suffering-wise. But we all suffer in different ways. And so Paul is a great guy for us to look at. He started off with the name Saul. Saul means demanded or asked for. That's what that name means. But his name was changed to Paul, which means little one, humble one. Isn't that interesting? From, from demanding to humble. That it embodies the moving from the self-led life to the God-led life. But Paul grew up in a, a, a city called Tarsus, which was the capital of Cilicia. Paul was a Greek-speaking Jew, which means to most Jews, he was a second-class citizen. And so as a second-class citizen, do you think Paul might have been trying to get a one-up in life? I think so. You know who his trainer was? It was a guy named Gamaliel. <coughs> Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel, who was one of the two great rabbis known in Jewish history. Hillel and Shammai, those two guys were the ones who were always battling. One, Shammai was very conservative and Hillel was very liberal in the way he viewed the, the, the Torah and different things and their application. But Paul sat under Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hillel. And so he was trained, probably, I think, might have been part of the Sanhedrin when Jesus was crucified. Very well could have been. He was kind of a contemporary with Jesus, about the same time frame. And, you know, when you think about his life, he grew up in Jerusalem. He knew Jesus. We knew he knew of him. We don't know of their encounter. And it's interesting to me that you don't hear anything about Paul's own testimony about life prior, really, to the Damascus Road, other than what he did to persecute Christians. He starts, really, in Acts chapter 7 at the end. He's there standing, holding the garments for those who are stoning Stephen. Acts chapter 9, we see his conversion. He's walking on a road. There's a big bright light, a thundering voice, and it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute who? Me. <laughs> Not why do you persecute my Christian friends or my Christian brothers or my followers. Why do you persecute me? And he has this experience where he encounters Jesus. He has a 
real Jesus experience. And it changed his life. He was blind for three days. And this guy named Ananias, how would you like to have been Ananias? Ananias was told, okay, there's this guy named Saul that's going to come and he's going to be my servant. And he goes, I know who he is. I've heard of him. But see, we have a hard time imagining what that might have really felt like because we know the end of the story. But I want you to imagine for a second going back in the early 1940s, maybe mid-1940s, 1943, 1944, and you're Jewish. And God says, Adolf Hitler is going to be my servant. He's going to come and I want you to welcome him into your house. I want you to take care of him. Can you imagine that? Or Osama bin Laden is going to come in our day. Think about that. That's what Ananias was feeling. But God, you know, used Ananias to minister to Paul, and he said, he's going to be my servant. And then Saul went out, and he went on missionary journey after missionary journey, and was taken before kings. And it was said back, I think, in Acts chapter 8, I'm sorry, I think it was Acts chapter 9, he will go before kings and leaders. It was a prophecy that was ended up fulfilled. So as we look at Paul's life, we're going to focus primarily on his time before Herod today. But we're going to make some references back and forth. But there's three principles that I really want to draw from Paul's life that I want us to apply to what we've been going through on being a witness. One of them is that God calls us to witness even through the pains of the world, the persecution of the world, and the prison and the death that is in the world that may come to us. Uh, He calls us to witness even through this world's pain and God's plan. Bottom line. Because anything that happens to us, guys, goes through the hands of God. Anything and everything. Nothing happens in your life coincidentally, by chance. Everything is there. So God wants us to witness through those things. And He allows those things. Second thing is He wants us to view pain and obstacles as opportunities to be a strong witness of faith in Jesus. How do you view pain and obstacles in your life? Do you view them as an opportunity to be a strong witness? Because that's what He wants us to do. And finally, He wants us all to finish our race with faith and grace. The way Paul did. So, be a witness even though this world and His plan may include pain, persecution, prison, and death. So, if God brought somebody into your life and they said, Marlon, hey, I want you to go to Egypt with me tomorrow because there's this great witnessing opportunity and you know, I don't know, I never met you before, but God just put some how he brought our paths together. Would our first thought be, I'm not going to Egypt to share the gospel. I'm not going to Afghanistan to share the gospel. I'm not going to Pakistan. Would that be our first thought? If that's our first thought, what that's telling us is we're holding on to this world more than we're holding on to God. Because our first thought should be, okay, God, I don't know this guy. But I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you if this is what you want me to do. And guys, I'm just telling you, we have been conditioned to always think about the world first. Everything in our world conditions us to not go to God first. It's natural for us to go to the world first. We have opportunities every day to be a witness for Him that, oh, you know what? I've already got this on. And we don't look at our calendar and we're like the disciples following Jesus. Shh! He doesn't have time for you. When... God wanted Bartimaeus to be part of the story. And there's people all around us whose lives 
basically God's waiting for somebody to come into the the path to tell them about Jesus. And and it could be us. But it may not be us because of our disobedience. But you can bet that that person's salvation is not depending on our obedience. God's gracious. But we end up missing out. And so Paul was a guy who thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was following God in his own way. And he was following God in his own way. He wasn't following the way God wanted him to follow him. And so... This what happens, let me just take you through real quick. Paul in Acts chapter 21, he'd gone on these missionary journeys, and in Acts 21, we see he's mobbed. He he ends up leaving one place thinking that he's going away from a mob, but he ends up getting mobbed, and and there's a Roman centurion that rescues him. A Roman soldier rescues him because uh, people are going to tear him to pieces. And this guy steps in and Paul says, Wait, 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 let me. Let me make a defense. And he begins to speak to the people. And that happens in Acts 22. Well, what ends up happening as a result of that, Paul gets taken to Caesarea. He's a Roman citizen. And so he goes to Caesarea, which if you, you know, Chuck, we were there. He was taken to Caesarea Maritime, which is right on the Mediterranean Sea. And as he's at Caesarea, he goes before Felix, who's kind of the governor or the, the leader from Rome over there. And he has this encounter with Felix where he's sharing who he is and what, what's going on in his life. And it says that Felix, having an accurate knowledge of the way, knew about the way was Jesus, <clears throat> says, you know, this guy hasn't really done anything wrong. And he listened to Paul. And what happened is he listened to Paul, and that's in Acts 23, as he listened to... Um, uh, I'm sorry, that's Acts 24. As he listened to Paul, he goes, you know what? Um, I'll, I'll talk to you later. I'll talk to you later. And he was hoping Paul would give him a bribe. You know why he was hoping Paul would give him a bribe? Because it would discredit Paul's belief in the sovereignty of God and the trust that he had in God. And what happens is he leaves him in jail. Festus comes on the scene, replaces Felix. And Festus comes to the same conclusion. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. And he's got to give an account to Caesar about why they're holding a Roman citizen. And so he calls Herod. And in Acts 26, Paul lays out his life story to Herod and what he's done, what his life was like before Christ, how he came to Christ, and what happened after. And guys, everybody in here should be able to say what my life was like before Christ, how I came to Christ, and what it was like after. Now, if you're like me and grew up in a family that took you to church from very early on in life, I didn't know any different except going into a church building as a kid and being part of a church family. That's what I grew up with. But, I still have a before what I would call understanding who Christ was part of my life. And that's what happened when I got in the Marine Corps and when I was in college. And I lived for me. Even though I had professed a love for Jesus and I believe I was a follower of Jesus, but I followed Him the way I wanted to follow Him. And it wasn't until the bird came through my windshield and almost killed me that God got my attention and helped me understand the true message of the Bible. So whether you grow up going, hearing about Jesus, or whether you have a, a later in life conversion, 
We all have a before Christ part of our life. And even maybe an after Christ part of our life where we're not walking with Him. And we don't really know Him. And so we, if we can't tell somebody about that part of a life, maybe we need to think, you know, okay, do I even really know Him? If I, if I can't tell somebody how I came to know Him, we got to, you know, and you may not be able to say on this specific day. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is there was a time in my life where I lived for myself. Nobody in this room always lived for Jesus. I can tell you that. Nobody in the world has always lived for Jesus. Even, even as, as a young believer, when you come to Christ as a young believer, everybody goes through phases of working through their selfishness and how God gets their attention. Even Billy Graham talks about that. He struggled. And he struggled and it was on a hillside in California where he said, I will take for faith. This is your word. And you are who you said you are and you do, did what you said you're going to do. We all have those experiences. But then Paul talks about afterwards. So we're going to read this in Acts chapter 26. And as we do, I want to talk about these three principles that we laid out. Acts 26. Because I want you to hear what Paul says about his own life. And it's his defense before Agrippa. And so, um, starting in verse 2, Acts 26, I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I, don't, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. Now at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you've seen me and, and you've seen me and so into those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people 
and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. To this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then jump down to verse 32. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. All his letters, his words of instruction to the to the church, God used him to pen, came from these kind of encounters. But I want you to pick up on this. When we read this, we read about a guy who's incarcerated, who's, who's standing before the leaders of that area. A king. A king is there. Paul had been told he was going to stand before a king. And he's standing before a king. And he's giving a defense. He, king Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa was a puppet king. He was, he, this is Agrippa. This is, you know, there's lots of Herods, by the way. This is one of the last, I think this is the last one mentioned in the Bible. Herod the second, Herod Agrippa the second. And he was a nasty guy married to a nasty lady. They were vicious, and I don't want to get political, but I just want to say there's a lot of people that think Trump's nasty. There's a lot of people that thought Barack Obama was nasty. Look at how he addresses him. How did he talk to Herod? This nasty, vicious guy. I'm, I'm glad to be in front of you, O'Herod. He talked with respect throughout the whole thing. Made me think of when Billy Graham went and sat with Bill Clinton after the impeachment. Yeah. Um, it's also what he doesn't say. He's not complaining. He's not, call, he's not saying, well, they're lying about me and, and all the things that our flesh would want us to do to really defend ourselves. I'm, I'm wasting my life here in this jail. He's, he's recognizing it for what it is. It's an opportunity that God's, he's not there by accident. And so if he, if he complains, 
He's going to be just like everybody else that's in front of that king. But if, 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 he, if, he, if he changes his message and it's one of, of positivity, that, that, that he's, he's going to get the guy's attention. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. He never refused to speak the truth. In fact, he said they, they, their charges aren't true. But he's not complaining. He's there and he's making his appeal. And Acts 21.31 And they were seeking to kill him. There's talking about Paul. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. This is where they came in. Acts 21. So all the people, the mobs coming in to kill Paul. Acts 23, verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces. What if it said, in the, and, and they were afraid David would be torn to pieces. Chuck would be torn to pieces. I mean, th- this, is, this is real life drama being played out. This is not something that didn't happen. This guy's life was in danger. Acts 24.6 They lie. They said, this guy tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out. You know how they examine people? You know how the Romans examine people? It was scourging. It was brutal. Did Paul's world include pain, persecution, prison, and eventually death? But he knew that God had called him to be a witness. In Galatians 6.17, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Do you know John Monger? If he came in here and he pulled his shirt off on his back, you'd see the scars from when he was beaten when he was in prison. He bears marks. Never once, and all the time I've known John and all the time I've been with him, I've never once heard him complain. Are we a witness when we go through pain? Or are we a complainer? Are we a witness when God gives us opportunity to walk through? And sometimes it may not be persecution in a prison. Sometimes it may be the pain of our world. It may be the pain of, of, of dealing with loved ones that struggle with an illness or our own illness. You know, it's, our perspective has got to be, guys, that God calls us to be a witness when we walk through these difficult times. Because we show to the world that our faith and our trust is not in building an earthly palace. It's not in this body being an earthly palace for us. Comfort and pleasure... We're to be a witness. And He uses the pain, and even when it's the pain of our loved ones, walking with, you know, sitting in the hospital with your daughter, wondering and watching her struggle and not being able to help. But you do know the cardiologist went to Israel with us four years ago. And he took ten people. And I I asked him, and he'd been to Israel before, but you know why he went? And he, he, he said, I want these people to see what I saw in you and Lori on the 10th floor at Shan's Hospital when you walked through this with Rachel. I want them to see the faith that you have. Because you guys were not like any other family that walked through death. Like all these other families were walking through. And, and it had nothing to do with Lori and I. I can tell you honestly, I, Lori and I would look at each other and we'd go... Lori, how do you feel? She goes, you know, I'm just, I'm okay. And I would say I'm okay. And I, I, we would be ministering to other families up on the 10th floor who weren't okay. 
We were being a witness. And as we go through our pains and we go through our struggles, it's opportunities for us to witness to the rest of the world that our faith and our trust is not in the outcome of an event, but it's in the one who holds the world in his hands. That's what he wants us to, to do. Well, it's not just that that we see in Paul, but we also see that our view of these, of these pains and obstacles, we see them as opportunities. <clears throat> And it's so easy for us to shrink back. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. All these letters were written, guys. By the way, Philippians. He wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and, and uh, Philemon while he was in Rome the first time. Let me just give you a quick timeline. So Paul's at Caesarea. He, he goes before um, Felix, and then he goes before Festus, then Herod. And then... Festus sends him to Rome on a ship. He goes to Rome on a ship, gets on the island of Malta, gets shipwrecked, eventually gets to Rome. He's in house arrest for two years in Rome. He has freedom in Rome to have people come and go. He's under house arrest. He's there two years and then he's released. He goes back and visits churches might have gone to Spain. We don't know where exactly where he went, but he went back and then is rearrested after the fires in AD 64 when Nero blamed the fires on the Christians. And the second time he's in Rome, he writes 2 Timothy. But some of his greatest words God used to bring through him was when he was over in Rome in prison, either a house arrest. But the first time he was under house arrest, he, he had freedom for people to come and go. Luke went over there and was with him. And that movie that we're going to see tomorrow night kind of combines a lot of these things. It doesn't differentiate between the first and the second. Yeah. I would add to that, it's my understanding as well, that he's under house arrest waiting for his accusers to come to Caesar's palace so that they can have a trial. And it's like a two-year statute of limitation. Yeah, and that, they never came. But, but, but the, the flip side of that is every day could be his last. As he's getting up in the morning, as he's saying the Shema, yeah, he didn't know. Today could be the day that they come and Caesar listens to them and believes them and they're going to take my head off my shoulders. Yeah, Paul didn't know. When he was there, he had no idea. All he knew is that God gave him favor so he was under house arrest. He wasn't necessarily in the Mamertine prison the first time. And, and But in the house arrest is, is where he's writing in Philippians, I count it all joy. Exactly. And he also wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. And, and here's this. Listen to what he says in Philemon 1, um, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really ha has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, this is easier said than done for us. Especially when it's your child that's going through a hard time, or whether it's your wife, or whether it's your own self. It's difficult. But think of whatever circumstance that it is. This has really happened to advance the gospel. Is it worth it? There was a pilot out in Yuma, Arizona when I was stationed out there. This, he was in a church before I got there. The pastor told me this story. And one day in a Sunday school class, this um, 
Pilate was praying for his father. His father wasn't a believer. And he prayed this prayer in front of everybody. He said, Lord, if it takes my death for my dad to know you, Lord, I, that's, I want my dad to know you the way I know you. A month later, he was killed in a plane crash. And his dad ended up coming to Christ at the funeral because his dad knew his son had faith. And he heard all these people testify of the faith of his son. His son laid down it all because his son knew that no matter what happened here, he had his security in heaven. And he was a witness. He viewed anything that would happen here as only a way for his dad to, to know Christ. Even death. In Acts 24.10, it says that Paul had an opportunity to testify before a governor. In, Acts, or in Philippians 4.22, it mentions a person of Caesar's household that was a believer. How do you think these people heard? There were people from Herod's court. There were people from Caesar's court. Paul had the opportunity in front of Felix, Festus, Herod, and Caesar to be able to be a witness. He viewed the pains and obstacles of life as nothing more than opportunities to be a witness of faith in Jesus. Does perspective not change things, guys? If you see this as being some random thing that happens in your life, then your perspective is complaining. Your perspective is, woe is me. But if you see this being an opportunity for God to work, and God taught me very early in ministry this, many times that these, every obstacle is merely an opportunity to demonstrate faith and trust and be a strong witness which is a stronger witness to drive around in a Bentley and say, man, God's blessed me or to have your wife battling cancer and to bury your wife with joy because you know your hope's not in this world, which is a stronger witness. And that's why the health and wealth gospel stuff just doesn't add up because it doesn't add up here. You don't see it in Paul's life. You don't see it in Peter's life. You don't see it in any of the apostles' life. But it sure fits the American dream. And that's why thousands and thousands of people in Nigeria and Kenya and all over the world cling to that message rather than this message that Paul's taken. Who says, you know what? This is for the advance of the gospel. That's what it's really about. If we really took an inventory of our life, guys, and we, we had to boil down... What has transpired, you know, prior to really understanding this? How much of our life has been motivated by advancing the gospel versus just living for myself? As much as we, we, make, we make Jesus a compartment of our life, it's not the motivating thrust of our life because we feel like that's just the preachers. True? I'm not a preacher. Man, I gotta, I gotta do other things. I'm a pilot. In my case, it was about me. I didn't understand that God had me there as His representative to represent Him. So when persecution came, when my CO was, was really making my life miserable because he didn't like the fact that I professed Christ, I complained a lot rather than seeing that as an opportunity to demonstrate grace like Paul did before Herod. Paul, Paul was very gracious. I count it a privilege to be in front of you, Herod. You know, it's just it, his the way he carried himself. Even Jesus, you know, he was just modeling himself after Jesus when Jesus was before those people. Jesus, 
Jesus, do you realize Jesus could have spoken and wiped out the entire earth in one moment of time? He said, I'm done with it. These people who were spitting on him, who were beating him, and yet he said, Father, forgive them because it's an opportunity to witness. Well, finally, it's finishing our race with grace. Over in Philippians 1 again, and I, go, I, I, I keep going back to Philippians. He wrote this while he was over there. Philippians 1.20. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will full, with full courage, now as always with Christ, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you resonate with that? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. This weekend, Jack Turpin is going to be celebrated. Jack Turpin is a guy who ran his race with grace and faith. John Mazel, who's a mentor of mine, who runs East West Ministries out of Dallas. It was the first ministry. He he took me under his wing, no training, nothing. I just said, you know, I just want to go serve. And he said, come on. Didn't send me to seminary. Didn't send me to go to Bible training school. He just said, come on. Took me, loved me, loved me in spite of my immaturity, my sometimes zealous immaturity. Said some stupid things but I was just trying to do the right thing and he was gracious to me and merciful as he led me and just, he's had this cough, this nagging cough and he went to the doctor and they told him, well, John, you have this rare disease. The lifespan for everybody is about seven, eight years. And they go, how long you had this cough like this? He said, about four or five years. So he said, well, Yep, that about fits where you are in the stage. I'd say you got about two to three years left. You know what he told me? He said, you know what, Doug? I want to finish stronger than I have. I want these last three to be the best years of ministry that I've given to my king. If you've got a diagnosis, would that be your perspective? If you had 30 days left, what would you do? Listen to what Paul says the end of his life. He's in prison. The second Timothy was written when he was there the second time right before he, he died, before he was beheaded. He's writing to Timothy, his young protege. Second Timothy 4. He says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus in Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. And bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. I really believe God used Paul to write that to Timothy so that people would have no doubt that although he was disappointed in Mark at one time, he didn't end his life that way. He affirmed Mark. He's useful to me in ministry. Remember, he and Barnabas split over that. He goes on to say, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, 
also the books and above all the parchments above all the parchments you know what he wanted in the last part of his life he wanted to still read God's word and still learn about his master still learn about his savior I see so many people oh I know that I've, yeah I know that story do you know every time I read through the Bible I see things that I never experienced or never I'm like wow I've read through this thing hundreds of times literally I've never seen that before Paul knew that. That's why it's so important to daily read the Word. Daily go over it. And I told my wife, I said, if I'm in a coma, if I can't talk, you read God's Word to me. You read His Word. I want you to read. I want you to read Paul's letter to Timothy. I want you to read the Psalms. I want you to read you know, uh, Paul's letter to uh, Ephesus. I want these read to me. If I can't talk to you, Read it. Just read it to me. Because I want, I want that. Paul wanted that. He wanted to run his race with faith and grace to the very end. He never wanted it to be said about him that he felt like God disappointed him that he turned his back on God. Jack finished well. I held his hands 12 hours before he died. And I think I shared this last week. Somebody came in and said, you know, Jack, we're going to pray you go home. And he pointed up and said, home. That's his home. This is not our home. Blake, your mother's in home now. I want to go home. My wife and I said, we're the first one to heaven wins. <laughs> she's going to be ticked if I beat her there. <laughs> I'm just telling you, she's going to be mad. <laughs> Chuck, my greatest prayer for your daughter-in-law is that she knows Jesus. Because if she knows Jesus, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Doesn't. Let's, let's finish our race with grace and faith, guys. Look at our pain as opportunities. And uh, pray for this thing tomorrow night. Yeah, Mark. I was just going to say, uh, in finishing strong and that type of thing, uh, you know, Dad passed away in December. And uh, my sister is not a believer. And at, at a point where he was, it was just a, a rough evening, and my sister kind of runs out of the room, and she was upset. And I walked out to kind of console her, and she just looks up, and she goes, how can your God let our dad suffer? Well, and uh, I just, I just said, sis, I don't know. But I know he's in this somewhere. I mean, you know, this... <laughs> This is not taking him by surprise. <clears throat> and over the next few days, um, to your point, Jenny and I are in there reading Psalms over him and, and, and just praying over him. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, the hospice nurse that got involved would make references to, well, no, he's not suffering. At this point, you know, in the, they call dying a process, you know, because it's all clinical in the hospital. And she said, you know, here is the way God has this plan head a little bit. There would be women that would come in the room and just go, hey, if y'all want to go have a cup of coffee, I'd just like to spend a few minutes with Ed and pray with him. Well, Dad wasn't praying back. He was, he was kind of just there. And my sister saw all this. And eventually, I realized this is how God can let our dad suffer like this because he's suffering for his sake. Mm -hmm. Not ours. Not his own. This is all so that maybe one of the you know one of the things that I saw God in it was I'm gonna flex a little bit in front of you, Mary Beth, because you need me 
he's got me. You need me. And this is how I'm going to kind of show myself through other people to you. Mm-hmm. And it made it better for me, you know, to, to see that. So. Well, here's the thing. The question, they're asking the wrong question. The question is not how a God, your God, could let somebody suffer. How could the God of the universe not wipe everybody out like he said he was going to do when he said you eat the fruit and you're done? And he lets us live when we ignore him, we spit upon him, we we ridicule him, and he, I mean, he, it's his mercy that allowed, we ask the wrong question. The question is, how could a God let anybody like Paul live who persecuted Christians? It's because he had a greater purpose. There was a greater purpose than that one individual place or life. So, uh, you know, Pray about tomorrow night. Dave, will you close our time in prayer?